Chapter 10, Pictures, Leave Your Body Behind. I sat in an office in front of a huge oak desk and waited for Miss Monaghan and waited and waited. I tried to keep my head up. I forced my eyes open comically wide, hoping they'd cooperate. What I needed was a cigarette and a bed, not to be lectured to by the walls, traditions, steps, promises, shut up. <sighs> the place stunk of dusty old Bibles and potpourri. I cursed the chair for offering me a hundred different slouches, not one of them sustainable in anything resembling comfort. And they had pulled me out of the line when we were cleared to come back into the building. Apparently, I was in time for one of their bi-monthly fire drills, just my luck. The kindly gentleman who dragged me down the hall, I guess I wasn't moving fast enough for them, tossed me into this pernicious chair and explained to me that I was to see the boss lady. This boss lady waited to arrive until the very instant I found sleep. Desk, garbage can, armrest, seat, foot, foot, head, back. These were the contact points I was using to approximate vertical when she arrived. Handsomely dressed, older, accompanied by my dear friend Nurse Paul, at her heels, carrying an armful of file folders at her bidding. I wiped the drool from my chin, sat up straight, and pulled myself together. Charles, you're using. I'm not going to bother to ask if you're using because you wouldn't benefit from another opportunity to lie. You can call me Charlie, Miss Monaghan. You remember Mr. DeFranco? He did your intake, she said, suddenly remembering introductions were in order. Sure, Nurse Paul and I go way back. And my name is Tricia Monahan. I am the executive director here. Charmed, I'm sure. I was trying my best for some sort of camaraderie, but it was not working for me. The reason you are here today is that we take any violations of our rules very seriously. We need to maintain a safe environment for our patients and staff, and we simply cannot have someone in your condition wandering around, upsetting everyone. Nurse Paul and I nodded in unison. What have you taken, Charlie? She asked point blank. I let my head fall to my chest for my confession. Bongo, wacky taffy, little TNT. She nodded her head as if I wasn't speaking complete gibberish and took careful notes. Nurse Paul sat there sweating like a pig. Where did you get the drugs? Again, I gave her my best hangdog. I keistered him. You might actually want to give everyone here a pretty good inspection. It's pretty bad, rampant. She scribbled down a few more notes. Since you've been forthright and cooperative with me, I'm going to allow you to start the program over again. Nurse Paul will have to give you an evaluation, and you'll be segregated from the other patients until you're a little more presentable. Program? I sputtered. Did she really think this counted as a program? My apologies, Miss, uh, she stared at me blankly, Miss Lady, but all we do is drink Kool-Aid and watch ALF. No, all you do is drink Kool-Aid and watch ALF. The rest of the patients attend lectures, 12-step workshops, and group therapy sessions. Your counselor says you don't participate in anything. 
I have a counselor? I was genuinely shocked. It was a familiar feeling, the feeling that everyone in life has received a user's manual, and I had missed it. Not that I would have read it, but still, it would have been nice to get one. Nurse Paul handed me a clipboard and yet another tiny, eraserless pencil to write my life story with. Do these things even exist outside of the treatment world? May I have a a grown-up pencil, please? Miss Monahan handed me a full-size pencil from her desk and explained to me that this opportunity for do-overs was a privilege and not a right, and that I should be grateful to her and Nurse Paul for seeing the inherent good in me and God bless America and drive a Chevy truck and stand up straight and don't cuss and be respectful of your elders and kiss butterflies and I'm sure a fuckload of other good stuff. I wasn't paying attention. I was filling out my names, addresses, and social security numbers for the hundredth fucking time. Just before signing the bottom of the page, I once again read the ironically sobering small print, The below signed agrees to stay under the care of the King County Detox Center for a minimum of 72 hours. Wait a minute. Excuse me, I interrupted their discussion of my treatment plan. What day is it? They both scurried after me as I beat a line up the hallway toward reception. It was a pretty good pace for someone who's still polluted with whatever horse tranquilizing chemicals Nurse Paul had put in me. You realize, of course, that you're leaving against medical advice. Wheezed Nurse Paul, trying to keep up. Martin, my good man, I called the second he was in earshot. Be a dear and fetch my stuff, would you? I'm going home. Miss Monahan was doing her best to reason with one side of my skull while Nurse Paul pleaded with the other. I'm sure they both presented slick and professional arguments, but I only heard white noise. Please, I pounded my fist on the counter. Your work here is done. Please see that Mr. Hyatt is escorted off the property after he signs for his personal effects, ordered Miss Monahan. Okay, so I behave poorly, I admit that. But in a way, I was grateful for the break, the way a man who's been bitten by a werewolf appreciates being locked in a windowless room on the full moon, the way a child molester appreciates solitary confinement in prison. It was a gift, really. The gift of carefree days of recreational drug use again. You know, when it was fun. Needles? I was done with them. I was done with heroin. I was in control again, and it felt good. Is all this talk extravagant at 10 o'clock in the morning when you're completely loaded on Thorazine? We think not. I want to thank you, Martin. I really enjoyed our talks. Talk? We had one talk, he said. Well, thanks for the cigarettes, then. I really appreciate it. You really should get to some meetings, you know, Martin offered as we neared the edge of the parking lot. It's the only way you're going to stay clean. I'll be fine. I just needed a break. You know, I'm not going back to it. I don't want to be a slave anymore. I'll see you next time, Charlie. Oh, fuck you, Martin. Have a nice day. Dear Charlie, where are you? It feels like you've been gone for days. I called your work, I called the hospital. I'm not calling the pigs. There's no one here to tell me no. I've gone someplace safe. XX. The note was stuck to the bathroom mirror with a piece of clear tape. It made me feel a new kind of terrible. Something I hadn't known before. I ripped it off the mirror and threw it in the trash. 
and then I saw her fury when she would inevitably find it and fished it out to start smoothing it. It drove her insane whenever I would throw away birthday cards and Christmas cards for my parents moments after reading. I placed her note on the kitchen counter face down, not before seeing the familiar double X at the bottom. She always signed the end of letters and notes with two X's. A kiss goodbye and one in case we die. We didn't have a mentor or a shaman advisor or a life coach or a priest. We had no shining example of anything from which to seek wisdom or garner advice. There had been no fedora-wearing, shady character that led us naively down an alley and into a downward spiral of loose morals and drug addiction. There wasn't even a charismatic cult leader to steal us from our cribs and ply us with hippie love philosophy that would somehow manage to have us selling our bodies on the street to make his Rolls Royce payments. Hell, we didn't even fall into the wrong crowd. We were starting our own wrong crowd. It was just me and her. She and I, as she would point out if she were standing behind me now. We sat with the medical textbooks she had checked out of the library, a bag of 10cc syringes we picked up at a drive through drugstore window on Indian School Road, and a half gram of cocaine. We didn't know where to get heroin, but cocaine was everywhere. It was the 80s, after all. This was it. We had worked our way up the drug food chain and were ready for the big leagues. We had drank, smoked, swallowed, and snorted everything we could get our hands on, and now we were hell-bent on actively participating in some truly destructive behavior. We may not have been born bad, but we were exploring all of our options with reckless abandon. This was one in a succession of dilapidated rental houses I lived in with various local punk rockers. My room wasn't really a room, but a large storage closet off the den. I ran an extension cord from the kitchen for power. The lack of windows never bothered me, but the lack of air conditioning in the upcoming Phoenix summer would be unbearable. These living situations rarely lasted for more than a year before we'd get the boot and move on to devalue the next unsuspecting landlord's investment property. She had purchased rubber tubing and alcohol swabs from a medical supply store. The ease with which we acquired all the ingredients was a little disturbing. We spread all the utensils between us on my bed and stared at them with equal parts nervousness and excitement. We were children on the first day of school. I brought the phone into my room and put it at the foot of the bed. I'll go first, that way if I have a seizure or keel over dead or something, you can call 911. I said, hoping not to sound like a pussy. Hmm, she said, biting her lip in contemplation. Having my boyfriend die in front of me will probably emotionally scar my young mind, she laughed. I say we do it at the same time. Fair enough. In moments like these, practicality goes out the window. As seemingly well-prepared as we were, there were still so many questions, almost all of which involved the amount to use and the odds of dying. There were a few things we had learned from movies, books, and urban legend, the rest we did straight out of the book. I bent the spoon to avoid spillage. She filled the syringe full with room-temperature water. In retrospect, that was too much. The coke dissolved instantly. No cooking required. We learned that from Burroughs. We dropped a tiny piece of cotton ball into the solutions. She saw that in an Al Pacino movie. I drew half the clear liquid into my needle and half into hers. We held the syringes up to the light, needle pointed up, and tapped them so that the air bubbles would rise to the top. 
We pushed the plungers to remove the excess air until the contents of the barrel was solid liquid. That we had seen in every made-for-TV hospital drama broadcast since the beginning of time. She had done her research and written copious amounts of notes on the pages she had bookmarked. According to a chart in the anatomy section of ASU's procedural medicine manual, the most obvious point of entry was called the median cubital vein. She began to read aloud from a textbook entitled Fundamentals of Nursing. Tie the tourniquet. It should be placed approximately four inches above the puncture site with the ends pointing upwards away from the site. Oftentimes a tourniquet must be applied before a person is able to determine the puncture site. I wrap the rubber tubing around my bicep. Insert the needle with the bevel facing up. The needle should be at a 15 to 20 degree angle and be placed in the same direction as the vein. She read from page 105, the taking a blood sample chapter from the practical nurse's guide. There was a slight sting as she poked the needle into my virginal vein. She drew back the plunger and a plume of blood filled the chamber. I cradled the needle on my fingers as she repeated the procedure on herself. Her arms were thin and delicate. No bulging veins disrupted the smoothness of her skin, and although her skin was so translucent, you could all but see her circulatory system beneath, finding a vein with the tip of a needle was still pretty much a guessing game. Shit. No blood registered on her first attempt. She had missed. A shimmer of light off the needle hanging out of my arm caught my eye as a droplet of blood ran down my elbow. She jabbed herself again. Shit, shit, shit. Again, nothing. Here, let me, I offered. No, I got it, I got it. She was bold and stubborn, and it had been two weeks and a day since her 16th birthday, and she was quite capable of sticking her own goddamn needle in her own goddamn vein. Thank you very much. She took a deep breath and dug the point into her arm. I heard the front door open and boots stomping around in the kitchen, then the blaring of piano, drums, and saxophones. Someone had dropped the needle on the turntable in the living room. Undaunted, Carrie probed under her skin. A single frustrated teardrop ran down her cheek. Still balancing, the syringe stuck in my vein. I checked the door to make sure it was locked. This was not something you wanted your roommates to walk in on. When I turned back around, she proudly stuck out her arm to display the dark red cloud that had filled up her syringe. Ready? She asked sweetly. She leaned over and kissed me. Ready, I said, my heart pounding. Kiss me again, she whispered, in case we die. <laughs>